0: Cornucopia Radio presents The date was Friday, March 25th, 1977. The location was Lensbury Sports and Social Clubhouse, Teddington, Greater London, UK. The police briefing was being held in a small room in the pavilion. The air was tense with excitement. The officers present had been working toward this moment for almost two years and it was time to raid the suspected LSD laboratory at 23 Seymour Road, Hampton Wick, Kingston-upon-Thames, a short drive away from the briefing location. The raid had been brought forward because it was known the suspects at Seymour Road were flying out of Heathrow the next day. Detective Inspector Dick Lee led the briefing and all present hung on his every word. The small raiding group consisted of several Operation Julie detectives including Stephen Bentley and Eric Wright, who had been undercover in rural Wales on the wider inquiry. Also present were a small group of scenes of crime officers who were going to search the house and gather evidence. The officers left the briefing and took up position. The raiding party had split up. Some went to the front door, while others went to the rear of the house that was in darkness. It was 8.05pm exactly and Detective Constables Bentley and Wright were in the group that clambered over a fence at the back of the large detached house. As the two approached the French windows, Stephen turned to grin at his mate and colleague Eric who was alongside him. There was a cry of Geronimo in Eric's unmistakable Gloucestershire burr. Then one of the officers swung a large bar, breaking the glass windows. There were shouts of Police! Stay still! Don't move! But officers could hear people running, scurrying around like giant mice. It was mayhem for a while. It was a little scary. What would they find? Would there be resistance or violence? What would happen next? For Detective Constable Stephen Bentley, it was a life-changing experience and it all started with a phone call he received from Detective Inspector Dick Lee, the operational commander of the newly formed secret Operation Julie Squad back in April 1976. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years and then retrained as a lawyer and practiced in criminal law. Now they're both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they'll discuss the cases they're reviewing and interview relevant parties including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The next case for review is the counter-drug investigation, Operation Julie, which took place in the mid-70s and an interview with one of the undercover agents involved in the investigation, Stephen Bentley.
1: Well we'd just like to say welcome to everybody, um, all of our listeners, whether you're new to us or not, and we just want to say that we're really pleased with the progress of the series. We've been so well received we've had a lot of interest and we've had some good reviews as well. So what do you think of the response, John?
2: Well, we're absolutely astounded as the worldwide coverage that we've received and the fact that we're now talking to other podcasters in the crime community, Australia, America, all parts of the world, in fact, and we, we just can't believe how we've taken off and mainly because of the lockdown, of course, technologies sort of come to the fore everybody's now on skypes and other types of uh, media which has made it fantastic for us hasn't it
1: it has yeah and we've been um dragged into the 21st century whether we like it or not so with within our podcast series we want to cover all kinds of serious crime not not just the murders but in particular we've got an interest in undercover policing haven't we and and we're interested in the work that undercover officers do and the pressure that that brings, and then potentially the danger that that brings with that kind of work. And with that in mind, we decided to bring Operation Julie to the podcast. Both of us had read a book called. Undercover, Operation Julie, The Inside Story. And that was a really fascinating book written by one officer who was involved in Operation Julie and his name's Stephen Bentley. And so we sort of conducted some research around that, didn't we? And what we found was that there was a Detective Inspector Dick Lee in Thames Valley uh, Drug Squad and he was putting together his sort of annual report and that would be late... 1974, and he realised that there was some kind of anomaly in that his undercover officers were very active in the pop festival scene, and regularly they were being offered amounts of LSD and considerable amounts of LSD. The anomaly arose when there were no police seizures of that drug, so therefore, you got the unusual circumstance where you got. LSD in circulation, um, but no intelligence regarding the UK drug scene and the use of LSD. Um, So that led him to continue his enquiries, and he concluded that somewhere in the country there must be production of LSD.
2: Yes, that's right, or potentially some may be imported, but primarily he concluded that there must be a factory illicitly making this drug.
1: That's right. And during the course of his investigation, his evidence gathering, there were certain names that kept cropping up. Um, Those names were Richard Hillary Kemp, and he was a a chemist who'd successfully synthesised LSD in the late 1960s. And then there was his partner, Dr. Christine Bott. She was a GP. So two very clever people. And then the other two names that kept coming out were Henry Todd and he was also known as George and David Solomon and at some point they were all based in Cambridge and then for whatever reason this group split up and Richard Kemp and Christine Bart and David Solomon moved to rural Wales and Henry Todd uh, set up his operation in Hampton Wick in London, and he recruited another chemist called Andy Munro. So I think it's important right from the outset to know that at the time that Dick Lee was getting his Operation Julie team together, there were actually two groups, both involved with the production of LSD, one in Wales and one in England. But
2: in the background, they, they knew each other and had split away. And, of course, at this time, Dick Lee and the other police officers that subsequently took part in Operation Jubilee, they didn't or wasn't aware of any of that. And that's where Stephen Bentley and others put the jigsaw together to the conclusion of the arrest at the end of the day.
1: That's right. So that's how we came to Operation Julie, And, and all that research that we've done uh, piqued our interest. And we started to put the Operation Julie podcast together, We were really lucky to be able to locate the author of the book, Stephen Bentley, and he was one of the undercover officers seconded to Operation Julie, and we spoke to him about his role in the operation. The first part of his involvement was as part of a surveillance team in Carno in mid-Wales, and that was on premises suspected to be Kemp's LSD factory. And then the second part of his involvement was his infiltration of those involved in the distribution of the LSD. So over the next four episodes, Stephen's going to guide us through his part in Operation Julie. He now lives in the Philippines, doesn't he? And sadly, the podcast coffers didn't stretch to a flight to the Philippines, uh, so we had to use Skype. Steve, thanks for joining us, and uh, you're speaking to us from your home in the Philippines. I'm guessing your view out of your window is very different to the view out of ours. It's a a grey, overcast, rather cool day here. How's your
3: outlook? Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me, and uh, the weather is... um... It's uh, been cloudy, quite a bit of rain. We're suffering from the second tropical storm in the past week. The first one was a bit of a mess. It was a typhoon, actually. Now, the second storm is coming through right now. But it'll soon clear up and hopefully the worst of it will leave us alone.
1: So your uh, outlook is grey and overcast and pretty much the same as ours then?
3: It is, but I'm sure that we'll see more sun than in the United Kingdom.
1: So what inspired or motivated you to become a police officer?
3: Uh, Motivated is probably a more accurate word than inspired. Uh, The bottom line is um, I needed money. I was 16, 17. I was still at school at 17. And I was getting to the age of girlfriends and wanting more money to go and watch uh, football and stuff like that. Although my father was a police officer for many years. At the time I joined the police force, He was a police officer and inspector in Liverpool City Police and I actually joined the Lancashire Police uh, instead, which of course uh, uh, was a neighbouring police force to uh, to Liverpool City Police.
2: Later on in your career you moved to Hampshire. Can you tell me what happened and how you became involved in Operation Jubilee?
3: Uh, When I... First went to Hampshire, for want of a better expression, lost my CID status and uh, had to start off all over again in uniform in Hampshire, clawed my way back onto CID. Uh, But my first uh, posting actually wasn't the divisional CID. It was the drug squad. And uh, I did a few drug busts with the Thames Valley drug squad. And that's where I first met Dick Lee because the, the top end of Hampshire butts up onto the royal county of Berkshire. So we, we, we did a few, obviously, drug dealers cross boundaries, and uh, we did a few joint operations and a few joint busts. And I got this phone call telling me that Dick Lee wanted to speak to me, and it was all kind of hush-hush. And he was putting this operation together that had got the blessing from the Home Office. So, I, you know, it was all very intriguing. Ended up meeting with him in devices and that's where Dick Lee laid his cards on the table. He said, look, this is going to be a joint operation with 11 police forces. It's uh, going to be a massive drugs investigation. It could be dangerous. The, uh, the operation, Dick Lee was detective inspector, is that right? He was the day-to-day operational boss as the DI on Operation Julie, and uh, in overall charge was a guy called Dennis Greenslade, a detective superintendent from uh, regional crime squad, Avon Avon and Somerset, based at Bristol.
2: So the operation was put together, but leading up to why the operation came to be put together, what was the background there? I understand information came in from the USA or Canada to the UK, which prompted it to be formed is that right two things really merged together
3: Uh, in the yeah 1970s early 1970s the free festival phenomenon started to uh, proliferate all over the country all over the UK Thames Valley in particular had its first share of those free festivals like Watchfield and uh, Thames Valley as a drug squad noticed there was a lot of acid, a lot of LSD. So Dick Lee got particularly interested in the source of the LSD. The other prong, if you want, the two-prong background, is um, the LSD scene had been going on a long time before the two laboratories in uh, in Britain. It had been going on back in the States. I think I'm right in saying since the 60s. People like Owsley, who was one of the first renowned LSD chemists, and then the famous or infamous Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was uh, all to do with Timothy Leary. There were other guys in the background in America at that time, a guy called Richard Stark, a guy called David Solomon, and... Solomon got involved with a a character called Jerry Thomas. And um, Thomas was busted in in Canada with uh, quite a large quantity of of hashish. And under Canadian laws at the time, he was facing a life sentence. The upshot was the Canadian authorities made contact with uh, the Metropolitan Police because Thomas wanted to give information about what he called the British gang or the British Microdot gang which was in fact Kemp later which turned out to be Richard Kemp and uh, he also referred to somebody by the name of George it took a long time to find out who that George was George was in fact Henry Todd and as things developed over time Henry Todd became the head honcho at the Seymour Road LSD laboratory and Dick Kemp was doing his own thing, first of all in Cambridge, and then in, then in Wales. And when it was discovered Kemp had been involved in a, a road crash near McConlith in, in mid Wales, I think it was Richard Parry from the local drug squad went to uh, McConlith to examine the Range Rover and they found this scrap of paper in the rubble at the back of the smashed up Range Rover. Um, Kemp's Range ranger. He, he'd uh, killed somebody in a in a road accident, and the, and the vehicle was still impounded. And this scrap of paper, when pieced together, made up a base ingredient of uh, that was needed in the manufacture of LSD. So, all these things were were, uh, were instrumental in Operation Julie under Dick Lee. Getting off the ground, and, and if it hadn't been for Dick Lee's insistence and, and determination,
2: it would never, have, it would never have kicked off. It would never have started. And how many? How many uh, initially? How many police staff were involved in Operation Julie when it started?
3: When it started, and
2: it stayed static
3: for a long, long time. It was um, twenty-five.
2: How did it get the name Operation Julie?
3: I wasn't there at the time, but I'm told reliably that one of the very first meetings that uh, the operational commander, Dick Lee, had at devises with a few of the early detectives, probably a few weeks before I joined the squad, a woman police sergeant called Julie Taylor walked in with a tray of biscuits and a pot of tea. Obviously, probably one or two ribald comments, bear in mind this is the 70s, not PC days that there are now. Dickley said, okay, that's enough, guys, knock it on the head. And, uh, and the, the operation was called after Julie, Operation Julie, Sergeant Julie Taylor of the Wiltshire Police Force.
2: So there's no other reason than that a spur of the moment decision was made on, on the spot there? Yeah, the lovely Julie
3: Taylor came in and uh, served tea and biscuits, and that was it. <laughs> and of course, had a song named after her. Uh Julie's working for the drug drugs. That's
1: right, yeah, the class, <laughs> yeah. And then the kid died the greatest memory. The year was still every drug that had ever been made. It was too long. It was too dark. And it was awful.
2: Still love itself. It was awful. The two working
3: for the drug squad. Julie's been working for the drug squad.
2: And just for. Uh, myself included, although I have uh, come across LSD in my uh, previous career. But basically, for for people who don't know anything about it, it's it's a chemically manufactured drug, isn't it? It's not grown like cannabis or heroin. It's a, a chemical composition, isn't yeah, it?
3: Yeah, it's a chemical. Yeah, chemically manufactured uh, drug, for want of a for better expression. But you know, the, the 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 stuff that Kent was making was. Uh, was very high purity, and he stumbled across the synthesis process uh, purely by accident. But uh, as a result of his uh, his discovery and the way he he manufactured his LSD, it ended up in being some of the purest
2: LSD ever known. And what's the effect on people that take LSD?
3: Well, it's, uh, it'll make you hallucinate. That's the basic uh, effect, uh, it's, and it's a long, long period of hallucinations. It, but it's not just hallucinations. It's—I um, mean, I've never used it. I've never tried it. Never wanted to. I was a bit scared, really. And um, you know, the, the, the thing with it is that it's not just hallucination. It's um, how can I describe it? Um, a lot of people. A lot of users of it um, talk about experiences where they where it's it's almost like a, a holy spiritual experience. Some of them describe kind of being in touch with a God, small g or, or large G, but it all, can also lead to paranoid thoughts and, uh, and fear and. Uh, and the fear that people are actually talking about you and you could hear their thoughts and that sort of thing. Um, This is why, you know, and I stress, I mean, it's illegal. It still is illegal. So I'm not advocating its use at all. But this is where regular users of the drug uh, would always advocate that you you have a, a babysitter with you to keep an eye on you. Yeah, you know, and, and the interesting thing is that that dick kemp let's talk about dick kemp's acid uh, richard kemp's lsd being very very pure uh, you know the, the the thing is it, it doesn't exist anymore uh, and some of the stuff that's on the streets now this uh, you know nobody's got any real idea of what's in it uh, you know it's quite scary dangerous stuff so you know i'm I'm not saying that Operation Julie was wrong and we did the wrong thing by breaking the gang up so that there's no more pure LSD. I'm just making the point that uh, what's replaced there is is unknown. It's an unknown quantity and, and probably highly dangerous.
1: So we're at the stage now where Stephen's been seconded to Operation Julie and uh, and it's fair to say that we've never worked undercover as such, have we? We've done observations where we're in plain clothes and we go to watch to see if there's any criminal activity uh, that would cause some concern, and you've been heavily involved in surveillance, haven't you?
2: For many years, I was on a unit that, that was their daily role, and it's a specialist activity because it's not straightforward it's easy to uh, try and pretend that you're invisible when nobody is and of course the art of surveillance is to blend into the background and not be well be seen but not noticed that's the key words that are always used in the training so for many years that was my thing and as we'll hear that uh, Operation Jubilee had to quickly gain these skills so that they could start observations on the premises that they suspected were being used for the illicit production of the LSD.
1: Yeah, I tell you what, John, there was I'm just having a bit of a flashback now because I do remember in the in the 1980s there was um, there was a club and at this nightclub they were supposed to be facilitating the distribution of drugs and there was myself and another policewoman and <laughs> we were tasked we'd go into this club as customers, if you can imagine that, and observing what we could to ascertain if they actually were uh, distributing drugs. So where the club was, we were from out of that area, so we didn't think that anybody had known us, and we were only young back in the 1980s, we were only young at that time, so we thought we could pass ourselves off as bonafide club goers. And suffice to say, we got all dressed up. We had a cover story about who we were, uh, where we'd come from and what we were doing there. And there was lots of planning went into it. And then the the, the night arrives and we go to this club, both of us uh, sharp intake of breath. And we walk boldly up towards the door. And I remember we were getting our, our money out to pay the entrance fee. But well, the first people we got to negotiate were the were the doormen. And that's when the planning fell apart because apparently one of the regular doormen had been replaced by a last-minute substitution. And to our horror, it was a a, crimin, a well-known criminal from the town where we worked. And not only did we recognise him, but he recognised us straight away. And he smiled at us, called us by our names and even opened the door for us. And then you're in a situation, well, what what do you do? Well, we couldn't walk straight out again. Uh, we got to see it through. So we actually went in to the nightclub, followed by our well-known doorman, who went straight to see the manager. And what followed was a flurry of activity by the staff. Needless to say, we didn't see anything happen. And after the passage of a suitable time, we both left. And the report that I wrote for my supervising officers was what can only be described as a short one, Um, being as we were rumbled before we even got inside the door. So it just shows you that best laid plans and all that, it's not an easy job. And all the planning in the world won't save you if that unexpected element happens I mean, when we look at th- that job that, that myself and my colleague were going to do, that was just a one- or a two-night job. But what Stephen was going into was something completely, completely different. So if I can move on from my reminiscences and flashbacks and get back to uh, Stephen, after Operation Julie was set up, what were the next steps?
2: Well, the next thing was to conduct surveillance on Plaslissing at Carno, which is located in mid-Wales, just west of a larger town called Newtown. As Stephen continued to explain to me.
3: My first uh, operational brief was to form part of a small surveillance team
2: at Plaslissing. And what, uh, what happened from the initial stages when when you set up? Plaslissin is a A large mansion house, or it
3: was in those days. I believe it still is, but it's been now uh, renovated and split into flats, I believe. But in those days, back in the 1970s, it was a large mansion house set back from the main road with fairly substantial grounds enclosed with a a wall, enclosed by a wall, I should say. So the first thing we had to do was uh, find out an observation post and uh, the observation post turned out to be an old caravan, which I think one of our Welsh members managed to scrounge. But, yeah, so it was a very small team, and we kept uh, we kept in under observation, as I say, 24-7.
2: When you were keeping observations and surveillance in the caravan, what cover story did you have ready in case you were asked why you were there?
3: The cover story we had ready and we set up was that we were surveying the land, we were land surveyors. Uh, I have it in my mind all these years after the event that we were looking for coal seams but I seem to remember somewhere else or seeing or hearing somewhere else that one of my colleagues said that we were looking for oil. We we we'd set ourselves up as, as surveyors and we had uh, theodolites and Plans all all spread out on the table in the caravan, and um, Terry Stokes actually had had, uh, addressed a a letter, which the post office, the Royal Mail, uh, were clever enough to find us and deliver it to the caravan because it was it was uh, addressed to uh, the land surveyors or something like that. The caravan and gave a location. Uh, and the postman found us and delivered it. So that was all kind of um, to help our cover story because the the postman in these rural areas is just uh, is very much a part of the community. And, um, you know, the postman would no doubt be asked by inquisitive people, well, what do you know about it? You know, so the letter would go a long way to explaining our presence to curious
2: individuals. How did the inquiry focus on PlastListin and who was the players in that uh, observations, if you like?
3: We found out that uh, PlastListin, the papers, the purchase papers were in the name of a Paul Anavaldi, an American. Uh, We discovered that and uh, Paul Anavaldi was big pals with Richard Kemp and Christine Bott. And we suspected, or Dick Lee suspected rather, even at that very early stage, that, that Lysin was the LSD laboratory operated by uh, uh, Richard Kemp and Christine Bob, with Arnaboldi keeping guard.
2: And do we think that that was uh, because of the LSD in america at that time was a lot more prevalent than here and he would he be the link between america and the uk
3: he was part of the link between america and the uk but the link goes back to uh it's not just america the link goes back to honor baldy richard kemp and ronald stark uh, and that link goes back to um, paris where, where stark eventually employed um, Richard Kemp to manufacture LSD in Paris Uh, and that's where, by the way that's where Richard Kemp uh, experienced his eureka moment where he discovered uh, a a new way to synthesize LSD which produced a much purer yield so there was the connection Uh, and those connections Honobaldi uh, was American, Stark was American, Uh, throw into that uh, mix David Solomon, who was also American. And Solomon and Stark in particular had strong connections to the Leary and the Brotherhood of Eternal love organisation in America.
2: Very often you have to just take the bull by the horn, see what you can find and see where it leads you to. That was basically what happened, wasn't it?
3: Well, it was. It was. Uh, Dickley was satisfied. Well, as I've already said, he uh, he had a hunch more than a hunch that yeah, LSD was being manufactured by Bot at class listen at the, at the mansion. I keep calling it a mansion because it was it, it was a big house. It was a mansion. And uh, as I say, it turned out he was right. Um, so the first step was to put the whole mansion and the people therein. people i've mentioned under surveillance which is what we did and uh, we watched the place constantly night and day Uh, we had some decent equipment some decent photographic equipment and uh, anytime there was any movement we took photographs And, uh, and then at night we could see it was very little to see at night apart from we often saw on a Baldy it turned out to be, uh, sat at a lighted bedroom window uh, on the top floor of the house. And his job, we were later to discover, was to keep guard, to keep watch. He was the watchdog. But uh, apart from Christine Bott and, uh, and Richard Kemp going to and from occasionally uh, in their old Renault, Christine was always the driver. Apart from that kind of activity, there was little little else going on. There was very little to see. It was just a question of constantly watching and logging any events at all. But sometimes Kemp would stay there for two or three days, and obviously what he was doing, well, we know what he was doing, we later discovered what he was doing. He was actually cooking the batch. He was making uh, the LSD. While well, Christine went off and left him to it. And the, all, the laboratory was down in the basement. Uh, and, and that stopped the, uh, any fumes uh, affecting anybody else in the household, which is one of the reasons why Christine didn't stay there. She just left uh, left him there. And that's why Anna Baldi stayed out of the way, more or less on the top floor all the time. Uh, and Kemp did make a point of saying, after his arrest, that uh, he insisted that nobody else was in there because of fumes and he didn't want people
2: getting high on LSD. So you're maintaining observations at PLAS Listen and um, how long did they continue for? Yeah, we, we were there for several weeks. I think it was something like
3: four, five, maybe six weeks we, we were in, using the caravan. Uh, for surveillance on Plas and then it became obvious that um, the production run was over because they, they were clearly packing up and uh, moving stuff, uh, moving equipment. Dickley surmised that the production run was over, and then there was a dilemma: Well, production runs over, what do we do here? Uh, do we do we go in and bust them, arrest them, and find the remains of the? Uh, LSD laboratory and probably find an awful lot of pure LSD as well and Dick Lee took the decision quite rightly in my view but that's easier said with hindsight Dick Lee took the decision to let things carry on running because our brief was to was to take out not only the LSD laboratory and again I stress at this stage we only knew about one not two and to take out the distribution network. Well, we were nowhere near the distribution network at this stage, so we we just watched as they packed up and left.
1: We went to Plaslissing, didn't we? And the place has changed from, from what Stephen describes... It been, I think he describes it as a, as a mansion house, yes. uh, and in the middle of nowhere, uh, and it's changed somewhat now, hasn't it?
2: Yes, quite. The the time of uh, Operation Julie, there was newspaper articles. Subsequently, when the operation was finished, and I think Stephen's got some in his book. I think we visited to see what was there now, and if anybody would talk to us, didn't we, and knock on the door yeah. and, and make ourselves known? Unfortunately. There was nobody there, and we subsequently learned, I think, that they may have been now converted some of it into flats. But the most striking thing was that the description given in the late 70s was completely different now, because like a cul-de-sac of new bungalows had been built just in front of the house, so it was completely out of character of this isolated large house that was what happened when Operation Julie took place.
1: Yeah, and Lissin is no longer the isolated rural uh, house in, in that location, is it? It's got this uh, estate in front of it of small bungalows.
2: Yes, the you can see why at the time, when you visit, that that would be an ideal location to conduct illegal activities. It was well out the way, stood on its own, in its own grounds and the chances of being discovered accidentally were very slim, and and that's no doubt why they chose that place.
1: Yeah, and while the observations uh, that Stephen's team were undertaking at Plaslissing, watching the comings and goings of uh, Richard Kemp and Christine Bott, there was also other officers that were keeping observations on Kemp and Bott's house, back in a small place near Tregaron, which is about fifty miles away from Carno. From and to facilitate that they they rented a cottage called Bronwood, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much near to Kemp and Gott's cottage, so that they could eavesdrop on them. So while Stephen is watching them coming and going from Plastlissing, there there's another team watching at the other end, them coming and going from from their own cottage.
2: Yeah, it's quite clear that Operation Julie was made up of many parts taking place all over the country, really, but particularly Wales and London. And no doubt Stephen Bentley's involvement, which we will subsequently learn, was only a small part of a big picture. And it's quite clear to me when you visit Plasliss in the localities out the way, and then interestingly, Kemp and Bot, who live near Tregaron, some 50 miles away, were clearly trying to distance themselves from Plaslissing. The people of Plaslissing area, if they did see them, wouldn't recognise them. And they've distanced themselves 50 miles away to, to sort of keep their cover running and, and not be discovered.
1: That's right. And the, as we've heard from Stephen, they came to a point where it it, it was apparent that they were packing up, um, and there's a really difficult decision to be made at that point in an operation, isn't there? That do do you move in and arrest then, or do you let it run? And obviously, as Stevens told us, uh, Dick Lee let the matter let the matter run. That's a brave decision to make, isn't it?
2: Any major inquiries involving um, planning and a bit of luck on your side that you're at the right place at the right time and witness something that you can really use as evidence against these people. But surveillance is, and particularly at Plas Listen, it was the early days of Operation Julie. Clearly, Stephen Bentley on the surveillance team as he was then, prior to going undercover, his objective with the others was to see what we call in police speak is the lifestyle of the people who live there, who's living there, Where do they go? When do they come? Who do they visit? Who visits? And you build up a picture of what is actually going on and as that picture develops the commander of the team which was um, Dick Lee and other people above him would have to make a decision as to which direction now the surveillance and the observations take. Have we seen what we think we've seen or do we need more time? And it runs the risk as it did in this case that you give it a little bit too much time and they pack up and leave which they did and of course if you jump too quickly you may catch these people at Plas Listen but Dick Lee I'm sure was aware from how this has developed that there was more to them than these at that location and you want the bigger picture to mop everybody up as best you can and decisions are made events happen some work, some don't but they live to fight another day, and that's what happened here.
1: So after having seen all the suspects pack up and leave, uh, what would happen next? And Stephen continues the story from here. That
3: was it. Uh, We we waited, we waited, probably about another week. There was no sign of any movement whatsoever, no lights on in the place. So Dick Lee gave us the go-ahead to uh, break in and have a, a look around or a nosy round, and we did. And uh, we decided that uh, that night was as good a night as any to uh, to go in. So we were skulking around there, hiding. It was pitch black night, no moon or anything. And uh, I had this bright idea of throwing some gravel up at the window, a bedroom window, thinking, well, if, if there's somebody inside, surely they'll hear that. And uh, a light will come on. Anyway, no light came on. There was no sign of any movement. So we went in. First of all, we, we, we decided the easiest point of entry was, uh, it was down a slightly grassy slope. And there was a, a very small door to, to the basement. And uh, me being the, the tallest guy, I decided to, or we decided to stay outside. I didn't want to bang my head on low beams in the basement. So, Terry and Di went in and uh, had a scrape around for forensic uh, samples and put them into exhibit bags, scraping stuff off the walls and this, that, and the other. And we also took some residue. When they came out, we took sort of Di took some, Di reese, took some residue out of the drain pipe that led outside and found the, the dead rodents. And when the rodent was examined, at the uh, Forensic Laboratory in Oldermaster, uh, he confirmed that uh, the rodents had died of an overdose of LSD. And, and a lot of the other residue samples off the wall, the plaster scrapings and paint scrapings and scrapings from timber racking, they all contained traces of LSD. So we knew then for sure that an LSD run had in fact, happened at last listen That was it. Carnot was wrapped up. Ne- On to the next thing.
2: So it must have been quite a disappointment at the time when all this operation was up, running, and you're getting progress observation-wise, and then it suddenly ceases. A backward step, as it must have felt at the, that time.
3: Um, good question. Good observation. I think you can tell by... My response, I never actually thought of it that way before, uh, and I think one of the reasons I'd never thought of it that way before, never did at the time or even now, is because at the briefing back at uh, Devices in Wiltshire, Dickley briefed us all after the Plas Lysin surveillance. The focus now switched more to the distribution network. And more or less simultaneously, the name Henry Todd kept coming up because we had some very early surveillance on Henry as well, Henry Todd, at the at British drug houses in Enfield, North London, uh, where he was buying uh, certain basic precursors uh, for uh, making LSD. And it was following up on Henry Todd that we eventually got to find out discover that there was a second LSD laboratory operating in
1: um, in, in southwest london in hampton wick steve have mentioned british drug houses didn't he and they were a legitimate a legitimate company weren't they yes the
2: when anybody makes lsd and amphetamines Basically, they're using chemicals and products and laboratory equipment, which is standard stuff available, legitimately sold at companies throughout the country. British Drug Houses was one of those. I think it was Enfield where they highlighted that some of the gang were obviously buying products from them. Now, to make LSD, obviously you need the knowledge of how to make it, which clearly these people had. You know, there were chemists, there were doctors, there were highly trained. But when you actually look at the manufacturing process, it's clear that it's not easy to make uh, LSD. You need the knowledge and the equipment. You've got to have a laboratory, all the glass files and bubbling water that you see on films. And, of course, to make it, you need acids, solvents, reagents, and many other chemicals, which... You can buy quite legitimately. At that time, of course, drugs were in the early days in the population of the UK. It was sort of not common as it is now. So chemical companies probably sold the products, which now they couldn't do because they are restricted. But then it was different. These companies didn't do anything wrong. They sold products to people, and they may have spun a story that, They were chemists, they were working on, you know, all sorts of projects. So that's where they bought a lot of the equipment. And when you look into the manufacturing process, it's quite clear that it's very dangerous. Some of the chemicals explode, some catch fire, and also some are cancer-causing drugs.
1: So basically then, there were... British Drug Houses were a legitimate company, legitimately selling equipment and... These characters were buying the equipment and using it for uh, an illegitimate purpose.
2: Absolutely. I mean, when we think take going away completely from uh, drugs and uh, Operation Julie, in the days of the IRA, of course they used fertilisers, which was readily available to farmers, gardeners, and all that sort of sort of people. But they found a way of making bombs. There was no restriction on buying fertiliser. And equally, for this LSD, most, if not all, the chemicals could be bought from British drug houses and others quite legitimately. Bott and Kemp have gone back to their cottage uh, that you've mentioned. What's the next step? Is it the uh, infiltration or is there more work done on Kemp and Bott to see what they're up to and where the laboratory went to. There, there were there was part of the team uh, digging and digging and
3: digging, making inquiries about uh, Kemp and Bott, and at the same time, uh, the same kind of inquiries were going on about Henry Todd. Uh, this is the man, by the way, that was referred to as, as George, only George, by uh, by Jerry Thomas, the the informant that we mentioned. The man, Jerry Thomas, the man who had been arrested in Canada. Um, so um, all those inquiries were going on and, and, and some early surveillance was going on of uh, Henry Todd, as I say, both at the British Drug House in Enfield and also he had a, 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 an address in West London. Um, and so we had a, an observation team watching him going in and out watching his movements there and uh, we were watching him whenever he made a, a trip to uh, the British Drug House at Enfield um, but all, all of these things were ticking along in the background I think I'd gone home for a few days after class List Carno, and was wondering oh what next and uh, I got a phone call from Dick Lee asking me to come into the office on the Monday or make sure I was there at a certain time. And it was then that he went through my next role, which was uh, where I first met Eric, Eric Wright, uh, my undercover buddy. And uh, Dick Lee told us what he had in mind for us, gave us an option that we could accept it or decline it. Uh, So that was the next stage for me personally.
2: You mentioned that uh, you had to visit Dick Lee by appointment and he had a job for you to do. Uh, I understand that was uh, the infiltration process. Could you tell us what happened?
3: Yeah, I got the the call from Dick Lee, as I mentioned, and made my way over to Devizes. And uh, uh, there was just me, there was just myself and Dick to start off with, nobody else, and he... He was very quiet, and he said, oh, "I'm expecting somebody else." He said, "I've asked Eric Wright to come along." He said, "Do you know Eric?" I said, "I said obviously I know of him. I know he's on the squad, the Operation Julie squad, but I've never met him before, which I hadn't, never ever met Eric before." Anyway, uh, we waited a little while, and Eric turned up, breezed into the office, and I thought, "Oh my goodness, what have we got here?" He looked like a, uh, a an extra out of a Viking film. You know, a great big shock of fairly long red hair and a very fierce red beard and uh, built like the proverbial brick, I won't swear. (laughs) Brick something house. Um, Stocky guy uh, with his very pleasant, lilting Gloucester accent. He was seconded from the Avon and Somerset force, but he was actually a a Gloucester man from Gloucester, neighbouring Gloucestershire. And uh, we sat down. Eric went morning gov in his usual way and uh, Dick Lee started to brief us as to what he wanted us to do which essentially the way he set it out was he said, look, I want you two to go undercover and uh, infiltrate this very rural, uh, small Welsh community and uh, it's the first time I'd ever met Eric first time I'd ever heard of the name, the place name, Clandoway Brevi and forgive my pronunciation if that's not classic Welsh, but it's near enough, or, or it's the best you're going to get from me anyway. And uh, I'd never heard of Clandoway Brevy, never heard of it at all. Then he explained how rural it was that you know, there were just a few houses, and a pub, and a, a church, or a, a village post office, uh, and that was it. He said, you know, and the place is surrounded by mountains and sheep so uh, one of us or both of us said something along the lines of well what's in it for us you know why are we interested in this place and that's when he broached the subject of smiles whose real name was Alston Frederick Hughes uh, native of Manchester but lived in Birmingham for a long long time and uh, he said smiles is near the top of the tree the distribution tree he's one of the main uh, dealers, one of the main distributors of uh, LSD He said, I want you to get close to him Just be my eyes and ears on the ground And it was always made clear to us Right from uh, right from day one, right from this early stage That uh, Digley had seen enough information uh, The intelligence on Smiles To know that it was extremely unlikely That Smiles was ever going to deal with us even if he managed to trust us completely or accept our cover story that he wasn't going to deal with us so Dick made it quite clear that you know just be there and be my eyes and ears because I may need you Uh, so that was the the brief really was a fairly straightforward brief I think he said I'll give you a week or two to think about it. he said because you know it could be dangerous and uh, so I think with those words, that sort of hooked me in, really, because as being, I was 29 at the time, Eric's slightly younger, I think he was 27, and being 29 and daft, you know, somebody says, it could be dangerous, yeah, okay, um, you're a, bit, a little bit worried, but the, the adrenaline starts flowing, and this is what I joined the police for, you know, for these exciting moments, so I was hooked, really, so we didn't need a week or two weeks, Eric and I, Went off to another little office somewhere, we chatted for a few minutes, and I thought, yeah, I like this guy, I can get on with him, it's not going to be a problem working undercover with him. And uh, we both laughed and smiled and said, should we go back in and tell him? So we did, so we went straight back in and uh, we said, okay, we'll do it.
1: We've got to the stage now where Stephen's met his new undercover partner and he's going to be spending a lot of time with that, uh, that partner, that's Eric. And they've now been given their target and that's Smiles, a person who we'll soon discover he actually became very close to.
2: As Stephen says, he was young, uh, a young man of still only 29 years of age and he was given this role which... Was very unusual at that time. Undercover policing wasn't normal, and and this was one of the, if not the first major investigations using undercover police officers. Today, that would be completely different with the training that's given. But back in the 70s, that's what they did. They didn't have any training as such. There wasn't any training courses to go on. So Dick Lee had asked Stephen and Eric to take on the role. Gave them the options that. Uh, if they didn't want to do it to say so. But because they were keen, interested, they jumped at the chance and uh, took on the job and went forward from there. They didn't know who they were infiltrating. They'd never met any of the gang, as far as I'm aware, in particular the main target, Smiles, who they were sent to infiltrate. He was unknown to them and the police generally, and nobody knew what his reaction would be when he was approached whether it would be very dangerous or apprehensive. It was totally unknown. And Stephen and Eric were very brave for taking this on. And very successful, no doubt, as we'll hear. So at that stage, the inquiry was diverted away from plus listen onto its new role of infiltration of smiles.
1: Yeah, and I think in any police work that you do, you need that confidence and you need that self-belief as well. Um that's a really important part, isn't it?
2: Well, if you approach anybody and you you show signs of nerves or apprehension or any sort of fear and give give out the wrong vibe, as we'll probably say today. Smiles and others would pick that up. And even if they didn't think you were an undercover policeman, they might think, well, who are these people? Bearing in mind that it's not just the police that may look at these. Customer excise may be involved. There could be other gangs trying to infiltrate them to uh, steal the drugs, which isn't uncommon. Very often, these drug dealers are more scared of other gangs than the police. So confidence and fitting in with your surroundings like they did is the way to do it, and and that's what they were sent to do.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a good way of putting it, fitting in with your surroundings. Because basically, when you're living undercover, you're living a lie, aren't you?
2: Of course, you're you're, you're somebody you're not, and and being the right person in the place, fitting in is is part of the battle, and and that's what they were sent to do.
1: The story and the investigation of Operation Julie will take up the next three episodes and Stephen will continue to tell us about that investigation and his part in that investigation and the next three episodes will be released every two weeks on a Monday until the story is complete. So if you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed to our feed so you can get them as soon as we release them. We'd also like to tell you about an exciting new event that we're both involved in, and that's CrimeCon UK, the world's number one true crime event, and it's coming to London on June the 12th and 13th of 2021. You can get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. You can learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favourite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic science and delve deeper into unsolved crimes.
2: CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by Crime and Investigation. We'll both be there alongside other amazing true crime podcasters. So why not come, talk to us and ask us questions about this show and the different subjects we've covered.
1: The tickets are on sale now and we have an exclusive offer where you can get 10% off the ticket price when you use the code INVESTIGATORS at the checkout. So for more information about getting your ticket, visit crimecon.co.uk But before that, join us for the next episode of True Crime Investigators when Stephen will be talking about how he created his new undercover persona alongside his partner Eric and their first meeting with Smiles.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Richard Ashwell. It was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. The excerpt at the start of this episode was taken from Undercover Operation Julie, The Inside Story by Stephen Bentley and was used with the kind permission of Stephen Bentley and Worldmark Films Limited for exclusive use on this podcast we're asked to advise that any further use of any part of the excerpts by any means whatsoever is not permissible. You can find out more information and case notes about Operation Julie by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all podcast platforms and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you subscribe to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy the series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favorite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.